Andrew Womack Ministries presents part two in the Spirit, Soul, and Body series, a four-part album. This teaching by Andrew is titled Eternal Redemption. We pray that the Word of God will come alive in your heart as you listen. This is tape number two in our four-tape series on the subject of spirit, soul, and body. And on this tape, we're going to be discussing what I'm calling eternal redemption. Let me real quickly mention that on the first tape, I established the basics of spirit, soul, and body. And to me, this is life-changing revelation. It excites me so much because this is what changed my life. I believe that it uh, will change any person's life who truly understands the things that we were talking about. They're just awesome. They're beyond our ability to believe. I don't think if anybody would have sat down and figured out what could have been the greatest salvation that God could have provided for us, no one would have thought of the new birth and the realities that have taken place in our spirit. It's just beyond our imagination that God would indwell us, that our spirit would be as he is in this world. We would be one with him and all of the other things we discussed. So that's really the foundation. If you missed the first tape or something, I encourage you to get that because this is a series. If a person received the revelation that I shared on that first tape and says, man, I see it. The scripture says you are a completely brand new person. In your spirit, old things have passed away, all things have become new. As Jesus is, so am I in this world. I was created in righteousness and true holiness. And if you see that, that's the beginning. But let me bring up something here that I think a lot of people have either had a glimpse of this or maybe even clearly seen it and at one time believed that when they first got born again that they were a totally brand new person They rejoiced over that. It had immediate impact on their life. But then they sin, or they just get busy and they forget, they get occupied, something happens, and they find themselves back, maybe in some of the same sins that they committed before they got born again, or in some of the same situations, such as defeat, discouragement, uh, things like this. And because of that, they feel like, well, maybe I was changed, but boy, I've blown it again. So all of the things I've said on the previous tape about what happened at salvation, they may say, well, that may be so, but you don't understand. I've blown it so much since then that that's not so of me now. They don't recognize that what God does in the Spirit is something that is constant. It doesn't fluctuate based with your performance, and that's what I want to establish and get across on this tape. Let me say this. First of all, every time I minister on this on the radio, I have a large response from prisoners because prisoners, I think, are descriptive of a lot of us. All of us have prisons in our own life, problems in our own life. It's just not always as obvious as a person who's put behind bars. So when I minister on this on the radio, what happens is some of these prisoners who found themselves in jail, and they realized that they had just ruined their life. They had made a mess of it. They didn't want what they had. So they were looking to, man, I need to change. I need to get out of here. How can I change? So some minister comes across their path in prison, tells them that the Lord loves them and wants to change their life, and may even quote the exact scripture that we've used, 2 Corinthians 5.17, that if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. Well, this fits perfectly with what 
is going through most prisoners' mind. They want to change. They want to get out of there. They want their life to go a different direction. So they pray and ask God to come into their life, not only for the eternal benefit, but they're looking for change right now. And if they don't understand some of the things that I've said about spirit, soul, and body, that it's your spirit that gets changed, that the body and the soul start being changed, and they're in process, but you don't ever arrive. You just leave. And then everything else is a working out or a releasing of what's happened in the spirit. If a prisoner doesn't understand that, then they're prone to wake up in the morning. They find themselves in the same jail cell. They are facing the same trials, the same penalties. And if they aren't careful, if they only look in the physical realm, it would be easy for them to say, well, it didn't work. The word isn't true. God didn't change me because everything's the same. Their cell is the same. Now, the same thing happens with people outside of prison. They wake up in the morning and they find that they're still married to the same person. They still have the same job. They may still have the same discouraging circumstances. They may have the same sickness in their body. And matter of fact, lots of times those things will even intensify after you get born again because then the devil throws everything he has at you because you're no longer on his side and he tries to stop your witness. So if a person isn't careful, they can actually... Uh, become confused and thinking, well, I'm not sure that anything happened because they're looking for all of the change to take place in the physical realm. But the change begins and is already complete in the spirit. So let's go back and just amplify on this thing that we started on. Ephesians 4.24, that the new man has been created in righteousness and true holiness. It's not evolving into it, but in your spirit you are already righteous and you are already truly holy. Another scripture that goes right along with that is 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, For he made him who knew no sin, that's talking about God the Father, made his son Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, that verse is describing that Jesus became what we were, which was sin, so that we could become what he was, which was righteous. He gave us his righteousness and took our sin. And if you're going to believe part of that verse, which basically the church world believes that Jesus took our sins and paid for our sins, but they don't necessarily believe that we have become righteous. They think that this is something that takes place in the future when we go to heaven. But the scripture says that he took our sins and we became righteous, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And then again, that scripture in Ephesians 4.24 says that our spirit was created in righteousness and true holiness, that we are right now the righteousness of God. You think, how could a holy God look at me and what I've done and see me righteous? It's because John 4.24 says God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. What you have to do is just humble yourself, receive salvation as a gift, and when that happens, then God puts within you this new spirit that was created in righteousness and true holiness. And since God is a spirit, you can go before him in the spirit and worship him. You can worship him in spirit and in truth. You cannot worship God in your flesh. You cannot approach God based on what you do, on your actions and your thoughts. That in itself is such a radical truth. Most people, uh, when they approach God, they say, Oh, God, I'm so sorry. I failed you so poorly, so miserable. God, 
How could you love me? Oh, God, please have mercy on me. And they approach God actually standing before him in their own righteousness, looking at their own actions and their own thoughts and and feeling so guilty and thinking that that's the way that God sees them. But God is a spirit, and God only can relate to you and fellowship with you through the spirit. You have to have that born-again spirit. And if you do have it, then it was created in righteousness and true holiness. And even though you have sinned and come short in your flesh, even though you're never going to be perfect, you will never please God totally in your actions or in your thoughts, when you come before God, he sees you righteous and truly holy, Ephesians 4.24. And whether you've just totally rebelled at God or if you just aren't everything you should be, it doesn't matter because God looks at you in the Spirit. Look at this passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5. It says that He has predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to Himself according to the good pleasure of His will. Verse 6, To the praise of the glory of His grace wherein He hath made us accepted in the Beloved. God has accepted you. And that word accepted here is talking about more than just tolerate. He literally is pleased with you. You aren't pleased with you. You aren't pleased with the shape your body's in. You aren't pleased with the shape your mind is in and your thoughts. But see, God sees you in the Spirit. And when you get born again, you're a new creature. And He's pleased because it is totally His workmanship. Going on down to verse 13, it says in whom ye also trusted, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, after that ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Now, remember all of the things that I've been saying. When you get born again, your spirit is created righteous and truly holy. Ephesians 4.24 As Jesus is, so is your spirit right here in this world. 1 John 4.17 1 Corinthians 6.17 says, He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit, a singular one, to the exclusion of another. All of these things are stressing our holiness, our unity with God, that the Spirit was created righteous. And then this scripture in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 says that once you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You know, there are different types of ways that we use this word seal. For instance, when a woman cans food, she puts it in a jar, which is airtight, and then puts paraffin over the top of it and makes a seal, which means that it is preserved. It's protected. It's an airtight seal so that none of the airborne uh, impurities can get in there and cause that food or fruit to rot or spoil. And so it's a preserving type of thing. That's the way that this word is used in Ephesians 1.13, that we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. In a sense, what this means is that you were not only, your spirit when you get born again wasn't only created righteous and truly holy, but then it was sealed or it was vacuum packed. It's immediately encased by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of preservation. And what this means is that when a Christian fails in any area of their life after they've been born again, that rottenness or this uncleanness, the defilement that comes to your body and your mind doesn't penetrate your spirit because it's been sealed by the Holy Spirit. Your spirit doesn't change. If you haven't been perfect, which none of you, I haven't, none of us have been perfect since we've been born again, we fail. 
And see, some people don't understand this, but when God looks at sin, sin isn't only what you've done that's wrong, that violated some command, but sin is also what you should have been doing and you didn't do. In James 4.17, the scripture there says, To him that knows to do good, and does it not to him it is sin. So if you use God's definition of sin, that sin is not only a transgression of some law, but sin is also not doing what you should be doing. Well, if you use that as a definition of sin, all of us constantly come short. And it's true. None of us are everything we should. None of us love our mate exactly the way that Christ loved the church. None of us are as passionate about ministering to other people. We all let opportunities go. None of us meditate on the things of the Lord as much as we possibly could. We just don't ever match up. We are not perfect in ourselves. And your conscience constantly is showing you and bearing witness. It has this knowledge of right and wrong. And if you aren't careful, you will allow that conscience, that knowledge of your failure to affect you and think, well, when I got born again, God gave me a brand new start, but I've failed since then. And if you fail so many times, it doesn't matter, you know, if you do confess and get back to where you feel like, oh, now I'm back on track and everything's fine. If you do that over and over and over and over and over, year after year after year, which you do, eventually you'll just think, man, what's the use? And you will get this impression that you've somehow or another lost that holiness and that true holiness and purity that God created your spirit in. But you've got to remember that that spirit was encased. It was sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise so that you do not have that sin enter into your spirit. When you sin, your spirit does not participate. Your spirit still retains its original holiness and purity. It's as pure and holy right now as it will ever be. Here's some scriptures on this. First John chapter 3 and verse 9 says, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. Now, this passage of scripture is problematic in a number of ways. Uh, there's many people that have struggled with this. And I don't claim that I have full revelation. But let me say this. The only way that you can interpret... There's only two possible interpretations of this because the context of this scripture shows that Christians do sin. Uh, for instance, let me back up. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 that I read. In 1 John chapter 1... It says this in verse 8, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. In chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. And so here are three instances in this same letter where the writer, the Apostle John, is talking about sinning, and he says, if you say that you haven't sinned, you're a liar. And then he, he says, I'm writing to you so that you will not sin in the future, but if you do sin. And then he turns around in chapter 3 and he says, but if you're born of God, you cannot sin. That sounds contradictory, but you've got to understand that this context shows that Christians can sin. That's what John was saying. He says, if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who's already made an atonement, a payment for your sins. So what's he saying? Logic would show us that Christians can sin. We know that by personal experience as well as, as other places in Scripture, right here in this very book. And so 
the context shows that this isn't saying that it's impossible for a Christian to do something that is sin. That's not what it's saying. And yet it says a Christian can't sin. If you're born of God, you can't not sin. How do you harmonize this? The only possible explanation I've ever heard is that people will say this means habitual sins. There are actually some of the translations that will translate it this way. It means you can't habitually sin. And I've heard people make an effort to interpret this verse that way and uh, say that, say for instance, if you were a drunk before you got saved, you might get drunk once or twice, but if you were truly saved, you will not habitually sin. You will eventually see victory in that area or you weren't truly born again. Well, you might be able to embrace that if you only think about the huge, big sins. But if you look at sin the way the Bible does, again, him that knows to do good and does it not to him it is sin, we all habitually sin in that area. We all habitually fail to study the Word as much as we should. We all habitually fail to love others the way we should. We habitually fail to be as considerate of others. We habitually get into self-centeredness, and, and God habitually has to deal with these things. Also, sin... Sometimes we pass over some of the things, but in Ephesians chapter 5, that passage there puts gluttony in the same category as adultery and murder and all these other lists of sins. You know what? Gluttony can only happen habitually. A person doesn't get overweight by eating just one big meal. You could go out and eat anything. You could eat everything with fat and cholesterol in it, and you could gorge yourself one meal and it might make a pound different or something, but you can't gain 50 or 100 pounds off of one meal. It has to be done over and over again or habitually. Overweight is habitual sin. I'm not saying that to condemn anybody, but I'm saying it to put things into perspective. If a person interprets 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 to say that you cannot sin if you are truly born of God, and if they're talking about, well, that means habitual sin, then that would mean nobody could be born of God because we all habitually sin. The only way they can preach that is if they say, well, you can't habitually do the big sins, but the little sins, yes, you can habitually sin. That's not what this verse is saying. To me, the superior interpretation, the one that is obvious, if you understand spirit, soul, and body, is that the only part of you that is born of God is your spirit. Your soul isn't born of God. Your body's not born of God. They've been purchased, but they aren't redeemed yet. The only part of you that is changed right this moment is your spirit, and it cannot sin. So put all of this together. You were cre- that spirit was created in righteousness and true holiness, Ephesians 4.24. Then Ephesians 1.13, once you believe that spirit was sealed with the Holy Spirit, preserved, encased in the Holy Spirit, so that sin that you commit in your actions and in your thoughts don't penetrate that Spirit. And since that Spirit cannot sin itself, that means that that Spirit retains its purity and its holiness. It doesn't lose it based on your performance. This is pivotal to having relationship with God. If you don't understand this, and if you tie God's acceptance of you to your performance, you might perform better than some other people, but you'll always come short, and your own conscience will condemn you, and eventually that will keep you from enjoying the real love and blessings of God because you will just know that I've tried and tried and tried, and i am still got faults in me after all these years. 
But see, when you understand this concept of spirit, soul, and body, that it was your spirit that was changed, and it was created in righteousness and true holiness, it cannot sin, and it's been encased, sealed by the Holy Spirit so that no sin can penetrate it, then what that means is that that purity and holiness that you were born again with stays there. And God is a spirit, and he's always dealing with you based on that spirit, and that spirit retains its holy nature. Here's some other scriptures on this. Hebrews chapter 9. Wished we had time to read the entire chapter, but he's basically contrasting the Old Testament law with the New Testament grace and showing that what we've received through Jesus is far superior to the Old Testament law. And in chapter 9, he begins to make some direct comparisons about the Old Testament sacrifices. And the thrust of what he's saying is that the Old Testament sacrifices were just symbolic. They couldn't really set a person free. They were only symbolic until the real sacrifice of Jesus could come. And therefore, since they couldn't really purge, it was just for uh, illustration and for the purpose of reminder and, and illustrating. Therefore, they had to be offered over and over and over again. But when Jesus gave his life and provided the perfect sacrifice for our sins, that was a one time sacrifice. It never has to be repeated. And this is illustrating the point that I'm making, that when you get born again, that spirit doesn't sin, and it can't be contaminated by sin that you commit in your body, your actions, and mind, and so it retains that holiness. It doesn't have to be re-cleansed, re-purged. It doesn't have to be born again again. So here are some of the scriptures in Hebrews chapter 9 that say that. It says in verse 11, Hebrews 9, 11, it says, But Christ, being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. What a radical truth! There are very few people that think of their salvation as eternal. He saved you eternally. That's exactly the terminology. This is radical thinking to a lot of people. In verse 13, it says it's contrasting the sacrifice Jesus made with the Old Testament sacrifices. Verse 13 says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctify to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 15, For this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. Right here in three verses, it uses the terminology he entered in once into the holy place. He obtained eternal redemption. And then in verse 15, he obtained eternal inheritance. The emphasis in every one of these is that it was a one-time deal that works once for all. You go on down into the same chapter, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. It says, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entereth into the holy place every year with the blood of others. For then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once... 
in the end of the world hath he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after that the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them which look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. How many times do we have to be told? This is seven or eight times that the emphasis is on once, eternal redemption, eternal inheritance. He contrasted with the Old Testament and said they offered sacrifices constantly, but this man entered in once into the holy place and made one sacrifice for sins forever. Since we just die once, he only suffered once, and that one sacrifice paid for sins forever. What a radical truth. So in chapter 10, he draws a conclusion. He says, For the law, having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of those things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Verse 2, for then would they not have ceased to be offered? It's a question. It's got a question mark there. In other words, if the Old Testament sacrifices could have really worked, then they wouldn't have offered them over and over and over. But they had to offer them over and over and over because they were only temporary. They didn't really work. They were symbolic. But then he makes a comparison. He says, wouldn't they have ceased to be offered because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins? Of course, the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do it. They pictured it, but they couldn't obtain eternal redemption for us. But the point he's making is that if they could have, then the worshipers would have had no more conscience of sin. Well, the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't do it, but the New Testament sacrifice of Jesus could do it. It did do it. And if we would believe the truth, we could literally reach a place where we are no longer sin conscious. We could recognize that our spirit has been sanctified, perfected forever, and that we are not sinners, that God doesn't see us that way. This old phrase about, well, I'm just a sinner, saved by grace, that's not true. If you are still an old sinner, then you weren't truly saved. If you were truly saved, then you are no longer an old sinner. If you've been saved by grace, you've been changed, and you are now created in righteousness and true holiness And that spirit cannot sin. It's been sealed by the Holy Spirit so that sin doesn't penetrate it. And that's the way you have to approach God. And so you can't approach God as saying, I'm an old sinner. If you are, you need to be born again. If you're born again, then you aren't an old sinner. You are now the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 And you must approach him on that basis. You have to go through Jesus and through what Jesus did in that new spirit and say, Father, thank you that through Jesus I have boldness to enter right into the very throne of grace because you have made me righteous. This thing about, oh God, I'm so unrighteous. You either need to be born again or you need to start believing that you were changed and became the righteousness of God. And you've obtained eternal inheritance, eternal redemption. That's awesome. You were not only forgiven of past sins, but when you made Jesus your Lord and got born again, he forgave you of past, present tense, and future tense sins. Now, I know that that is a radical statement to some people, and they think, God can't forgive you of a sin before you commit it. Well, you better pray that he can, because he only died for your sins once. That's what all of these verses are saying. It was 2,000 years ago. He died for your sins. And if Jesus can't forgive a sin before you commit it, then you couldn't have been forgiven because he hasn't died for sin since then. 
Yes, Jesus paid for sins, past, present, and future tense. That may not go along with our thinking. It may not be the way humans think, but it's the way God thinks. Time and distance and space is not a problem to him. He's already dealt with all sins, past, present, and even future tense sins. Keep reading here in Hebrews chapter 10. He talks about Jesus dying, and when he died, he put a will into effect. And so in Hebrews 10.10, it says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Man, that's awesome. You are sanctified. The word sanctified has become a religious cliche, but it literally means separated or made holy. And you are sanctified, separated, made holy through the offering of Jesus Christ once for all. That's talking about once for all time. I have had some people counter me on this and say, no, it means one sacrifice was for all people, not for all time. You have to repent every time you sin and get that thing cleansed and under the blood, and if you don't deal with it, you lose your salvation. Predominantly, the Pentecostals have come up with the doctrine of backsliding, and every time you sin, you lose your salvation, and you've got to get it confessed, and if you don't and die before you get it confessed, you go to hell, even though you've been born again for 20, 30 years, and you just make one mistake. If you die before you get it confessed, you go to hell. That's not true. That's not what this is saying. The context will prove to you that this isn't talking about that the one sacrifice was made for all people, but it's talking about one sacrifice made you holy for all time. Here's the context. The very next verse is talking about the Old Testament law and how the priest had to offer oftentimes sacrifices, but it's contrasting it and saying Jesus did it one time for all time, not just for all people. In verse 11, it says, Every priest standeth daily ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. Not just one sacrifice for sins for all people, but one sacrifice for sins forever, for all time. Sat down on the right hand of God. Verse 13, From henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. Verse 14, for by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Verse 10 says that you were sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Verse 14 says that if you've been sanctified, you have been perfected forever. Talking about length of time. Your spirit does not lose this righteousness and holiness that it was created with. It is a constant It's something that never fluctuates. It's the same for all time. It cannot sin, and it's been sealed by the Holy Spirit so that sin from without can't penetrate and get into your spirit. Your spirit is sanctified and perfected forever. What a wonderful truth. And lest anybody still has trouble with this, let me use another passage from the same context. This is Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 23. It's talking about uh, how that we've come to the Lord, and it says in verse 23 that we've come to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just man made perfect. How clear can it get? This says it was your spirit that was made perfect. Put that into its context, Hebrews 10, 14. That spirit has been perfected forever, all length of time. You do not lose your right standing with God if you sin. 
What a wonderful truth and what a radical truth to our modern-day Christianity. Most Christians have been taught that when you come to the Lord, God forgives you and cleanses you and you become a new person. But then, every time you sin, you lose that right standing with God and you have to confess that sin and put it under the blood and get back under there. And if you don't, God is displeased with you. He can't accept you. And if you were to die before you get all of those sins repented of and confessed, you would go to hell. In a sense, those people are teaching that you have to be born again again. That's not eternal redemption. That's not eternal inheritance. That's saying that that one offering of Jesus didn't sanctify and perfect you forever, but you were only sanctified and perfected until the next time you blow it, which is constantly. And a person who believes that is never going to really develop and see great growth in their life because every time you sin, you lose it all and you have to start over again. That's not what the Scriptures teach. The Scriptures teach you are forgiven of past, present, and even future tense. Paul was making this same point over in Romans chapter 4. Hadn't got time to go into the whole thing, but here he quotes from David. In Romans chapter 4, verse 6, he says, Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. This is a quotation from Psalms 32. And he says, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not, not just did not, does not, but will not. That's even future tense. David saw by faith through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit how great our salvation was, and he expressed this by saying, Blessed is that person, these new covenant people, to whom the Lord will not impute sin. If you really believe this, how radically would it change your life? It would be tremendous. I know that some people listening to me are saying, well, if people believed what you say, then they'd just go live in sin because you're saying that they can't lose their salvation, that God loves them anyway. It's all based on their spirit. That would just encourage them to go live in sin. Well, Paul dealt with this same thing in Romans chapter 6, verse 1. He says, what shall we say then? What am I really saying? Am I saying that you shall continue in sin so that grace may abound? Of course, the answer to that was God forbid. Before I get into his answer, let me just say this, that if this question never comes up, if a person never says, what are you saying? That God loves me anyway, that I remain righteous and I don't lose my right standing with God, so therefore, are you saying I can just go live in sin? If that question never comes up, then you haven't preached the same gospel that Paul preached because it came up to him not once but four different times he dealt with this. He says, what am I saying? Do we continue in sin? God forbid. But even though you have to explain and say that, no, that's not what I'm saying, it should be a logical question. If that question never comes up, which in most cases it doesn't, most churches today, nobody is interpreting them as saying, can you just go live in sin? Because they're preaching so hard against sin and they basically tie God's love to you and acceptance of you to your performance. That's the typical message that's preached. That's not what the Bible preaches. God accepts you based on whether this spirit is righteous or not. And that spirit doesn't become righteous through your actions and through your goodness. It comes through you confessing Jesus as your Lord and being born again. Then when you get born again, God just gives you this brand new spirit. 
It's not based on your actions. Therefore, the message that is often preached in the name of the Lord is preaching a works righteousness, a self-righteousness, and based on your self-actions, God accepts you or rejects you. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that your actions can never be good enough. Some people are saying, so you're just saying that it doesn't matter how you live. No, that's not what I'm saying. Paul goes on in Romans chapter 6 to give you two reasons why a Christian should live holy. Number one, he says, God forbid, how shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Don't you know that when you were baptized into Christ, you were baptized into his death? And so basically what he's saying here is that if you are truly born again, God has changed your nature. You are no longer by nature a child of the devil who loves to sin. Now, you may still sin. Let me rephrase that. You do still sin. You may get to where you don't just overtly transgress the laws of God, but you still will fall short of doing what you should. You may get to where you're fairly good at not crossing the boundaries of breaking the commandments, but you will never do all that you should. So in that sense, you will still sin. But your spirit has been changed, and you no longer enjoy it. You don't love sin. If you're truly born again, there is a desire in every born-again person to live holy. They may not be fulfilling it. Matter of fact, religion, if it's preaching this legalism and works mentality, it can actually strengthen sin. I've got a whole tape set on this entitled The Nature of God. I encourage you to get that if what I'm saying is ministering to you, but you need clarification. That's an awesome tape set that has changed many people's lives. The law actually will make you sin more. It will actually strengthen and cause you to lust for the very things that the law commands you not to do. That's the reason God gave it. Because we already were deceived and being destroyed by sin, but we were deceiving ourselves into thinking, I'm pretty good. I'm okay. And so God says, you think you're okay? Let me show you what the, what the real standard of God is. And he gave you these laws that the scripture says in Romans chapter 7, it made sin come alive. It made you lust for the very thing that was forbidden. 1 Corinthians 15:56 says that the law strengthened sin. The law wasn't given to help you overcome sin. The law was given to show you that sin had already overcome you. It actually strengthened sin and gave it so much power that it would remove this deception of you ever getting rid of sin on your own. And it would make you just bow the knee and say, God, have mercy on me. I can't do it. I can't break this sin. That was the purpose of the law. Religion has actually turned it around and has told us that, no, the law was given to help you overcome sin. That's not true. The law was given to help sin overcome you, to break your self-deception of self-righteousness. So number one, if you are the reason you don't just go live in sin is because you're truly born again. You've got a desire to live for God. 1 John chapter 3 says it this way. In verse 3 it says, Every man that has this hope in him purifies himself even as he is pure. If you are truly born again, every man, every man who is truly born again purifies himself. Now, it's done to varying degrees. As far as your actions and your thoughts, there will be varying manifestations of this purity. But if you are truly born again, you are seeking and desiring to purify yourself. That's number one. And then in Romans six sixteen, Paul gives the second reason 
that you don't live in sin. Because in verse 16, it says, Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. The second reason you don't live in sin is because sin will give Satan, who is the author of that sin, access to you to come into your body and your soul part and bring his death. Sin will open you up to sickness. There's an instance where Jesus told a person, go and sin no more lest a worse thing come upon you. And he was talking about sickness. Sin isn't the only way that sickness comes into your body. I'm not saying that all sickness is a direct result of sin. It can happen other ways, but sin is one way that sickness comes into you. Sin will open up a door to Satan to bring sickness, poverty, shame, depression, discouragement, all kinds of things. So sin is still deadly. A Christian should not live in sin because, number one, he doesn't want to. Number two, it gives our enemy, the devil, an opportunity to come against us. But it is incorrect to tell a Christian that they have to live holy in order for God to accept them and to be pleased with them. Because God looks at your spirit, which was created in righteousness and true holiness. It cannot sin. It's sealed by the Holy Spirit. It's been sanctified and perfected forever. Our relationship with God is not dependent upon our physical actions. But our actions do determine how we get along with people, and it does determine how the devil has opportunity against us. So it's still to the credit and to the advantage of every Christian to live a holy life. But you must understand that you can't be perfect, and you can't ever overcome everything, and therefore don't ever try and relate to God based on your actions in your physical body. You have to relate to God based on who you are in your spirit. Boy, this has just set me free. It hasn't set me free to sin. It's set me free from sin. There's a difference. You know, I'm glad that God revealed this to me for my own personal benefit, but I'm also glad that he's given me the opportunity to share these truths because one of the criticisms that you get anytime you start teaching on this, people will say something like, well, you're just preaching this so that you can go live in sin. You can't accuse me of that because... I've lived a holier life accidentally than most people have on purpose. I mean, I have never said a word of profanity in all of my life. I've never taken a drink of liquor. I've never smoked a cigarette. I've never tasted coffee. And I'm not saying that coffee and booze are the same thing. The scripture says that in Mark 16, you can drink any deadly thing and it shall not harm you. So there's a scripture to drink coffee. I'm just making a joke. But I'm saying that I have lived a holy life, and people can't look at me and say, the reason I'm preaching this is because it allows me to go live in sin. No, I live a very holy life, but I don't do it in order to obtain God's blessing. I do it because God's revealed this truth to me, shown me, and he's changed my heart, and I desire to do it. It's good for me. It helps me minister to other people. It's better. It's happier to be holy than it is unholy. Man, if I go out and live in sin, did you know that God still would love me because my spirit is changed? But I wouldn't love me, and people wouldn't love me. Sin is an offense not only against God, but against people. If you go out and steal, it's not a matter of does God still love you if you go steal? Well, sure he would if you're truly born again. He'll deal with you based on that new born-again spirit. 
But I guarantee you, people aren't going to love you if you steal from them. And if they catch you, they're going to put you in jail. And you're going to go to suffering. And you're going to be depressed. And you're going to be confined. And you're going to be hurt. And all these kind of things are going to happen to you. And you're going to suffer. And you won't have as nice of a life. But does God still love you? Well, sure he does. You're still righteous in the sight of God. You're just stupid. And I'm not saying that trying to be mean. I'm trying to make my point. I'm trying to be blunt that, yes, there's reasons to live holy. I am not advocating sin, but I am saying this, that sin is not the issue between us and God, because when you get born again, God has already dealt with that sin, past, present, and even future tense. And because of that, I can come boldly before the Lord, even when I have fallen short and when I'm displeased with myself and I've given Satan an inroad into my life, I can still come boldly into the very presence of God and receive because my spirit didn't lose any of its right standing with the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, it says, Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. See, you don't just come before the Lord when you're perfect, when you've done everything right, but even when you've messed up, you can come boldly before the Lord and receive grace from God. You don't have to be perfect. You come before the Lord in faith in Jesus and who you are in Jesus, not in yourself. Now, this leads to some immediate logical conclusions. Somebody may be listening and saying, so therefore you believe once saved, always saved, that if you get born again, you can go commit any sin And regardless of what you do, you don't go to hell. You can live like the devil and still retain your salvation. Not exactly. That's not what I believe. I don't believe that's what the Scripture teaches. Well, somebody's saying, well, wait a minute. You just said that you can sin and your spirit has been sanctified and perfected forever. It's sealed and you're still righteous, and so therefore that sin doesn't penetrate your spirit. So you don't believe that you lose your salvation every time you sin. Therefore, you have to believe once saved, always saved. No, that's not the only option. When I first started really getting these revelations, these are some of the questions that I had about God, is it like the Baptists say, once saved, always saved? Or is it like the Pentecostals say, saved, lost, saved, lost, saved, lost, born again, again, again? And I struggled for a long time. Finally, one day, the Lord spoke to me, and he says, it's not A, once saved, always saved, or B, saved, lost, saved, lost, born again, again. It's C, none of the above. And the Lord showed me that both of those have a partial truth. But the truth is somewhere in between the two. For instance, uh, what the Baptist, and there's other denominations that would go along with this, but what the Baptists say about once saved, always saved, they have a partial truth, and that is that your spirit is sanctified and perfected forever, that you aren't saved by your own goodness. Therefore, your lack of goodness can't cause you to be unsaved. And if you confess faith in the Lord, then you are born again. And since faith is the issue, sin doesn't cause you to lose it. And that is true, and I believe that. A person who would contradict what I've just said and say, now wait a minute, I believe that if you sin, you do lose your salvation. You can't tell me that a person that's committed some grievous sin can go to heaven. Well, let me say this. In James chapter 2, verse 10, the scripture there says that if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of everything. 
Now, my testimony, as I told you, I haven't used profanity. I haven't taken a drink of liquor. I haven't smoked a cigarette. I haven't committed adultery. I'm a righteous, holy person in my actions according to most religious standards. But you know what? In my actions, I've fallen short. I did break some of the laws of God. If nothing else, I haven't loved people the way that I should. I haven't always told the truth. I tried to, but I can remember times that I was caught when I was a kid lying and got in trouble over it and stuff. And I've I've fought with people, and I've broken the law. I haven't done the quote-unquote big sins, but I broke the law. And according to James 2.10, if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of it all. It's like a glass. If you had a huge glass in front of you, you could shoot a BB through it and make a little hole, or you could throw a piano through it and make a huge hole. It doesn't matter. If you break a glass, you can't patch a little hole, and and you can't not patch a big hole. The whole thing is broken. The whole thing has to be replaced. God's law is like a glass. And you may only break a little tiny command, but if you break one point, you are guilty of breaking the whole thing. The whole thing has been violated. The whole thing has to be replaced. And that's the way it is with sin. A person who says, now, I believe that you have to be holy. You can't have sin in your life and still say that you're saved. Any person who says that has to categorize sin and say, Oh, I'm talking about big sin because, again, every one of us sin in some area, what some people call little sins. Again, you may get to where you aren't transgressing all of the commands, but I can promise you, you aren't keeping all of the things that God told you to do. You may not be overstepping the boundaries, but none of us are walking in love. None of us are perfect. None of us study. None of us pray. None of us do all these things. And James 4.17 says, To him that knows to do good and does it not, to him it is sin. So all of us are sinning in what some people would call the little things. And they say, oh yeah, well, but I'm talking about the big things. You can't tell me that a person who commits adultery, and if they were to die in their car on the way home from committing adultery, you can't tell me that they would still be saved. If they didn't have time to confess that, if they died in a car accident, They would go directly to hell. You can't tell me that an adulterer would go to heaven. Well, again, that's religious tradition. And if you use this scripture that sin is sin and that there is no little sin, if you sin in the little thing, you've broken the whole thing. If the principle is there, then that would mean that a person who goes 56 miles an hour, that's breaking the law. And the Lord told us in Romans 13 to obey the laws of the land, to submit ourselves under their commandments and obey them and do them. So according to the word, you shouldn't speed. If you go 56 in a 55-mile-an-hour zone, that's breaking the command of God. And according to James 2.10, if you break that little command, you're guilty of it all. You're guilty of the same thing as if you were to commit adultery. I know some of you say, oh, it's not the same thing. Well, it isn't in the eyes of man. There is a radical difference between going 56 miles an hour in a 55-mile-an-hour zone and committing adultery. In the eyes of man, but in the eyes of God, they're both coming short of his standard of perfection. And if you keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, you become guilty of all. So if the principle is that a person who commits adultery dies in a car accident and didn't have time to confess it before they died, therefore they'd go to hell. If that's true, well, then it would also be true that the person who goes 56 miles an hour in a 55 mile an hour zone and died before they had time to confess it would go to hell. That's what the scriptures teach. And if you believe that, 
then nobody will make it because we all are coming short. We all fail in a lot of different ways. The only way a person can believe that you can't have any sin in your life and still have a relationship with God, the only way a person can believe that is to start talking about big sins and little sins. And that's not a concept that's in the Bible. It is true that as far as people go, you won't be punished as much for going 56 miles an hour as you will for murdering a person. And so there are different consequences to sin in the eyes of men. But in the eyes of God, sin is sin. And if you've come short of the glory of God, you've missed it. It would be like if you were in a room where there was a ceiling that was 20 foot tall. And if God said to be saved, you have to re- jump and touch that ceiling. Well, if you're Michael Jordan, you might be able to jump 15 feet and get close, but you still couldn't jump 20 feet. And if you're a couch potato, you might only be able to jump 6 inches, but you'd still miss the ceiling. And you know the end result? If your life depended upon you jumping and touching that ceiling, it wouldn't matter if you got to 15 feet or if you only got to 6 inches. Both would miss it. And that's the way that it is with God. God's standard, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. God doesn't say, do the best you can as long as you're in the top 10%. I'm going to accept you because you really tried. No, you either have to be perfect or you need a Savior who was. And so what I'm saying is that I believe this concept that you can't sin your salvation away. If you could, then which sin is it that causes you to lose it? Oh, well, it's the big ones. Adultery, murder. Uh, There are no little sins in the sight of God. If you can send your salvation away, then the only way a person would ever make it to heaven is as soon as they get born again and they receive this new spirit that is created in righteousness and true holiness, then the person who leads them to the Lord should just knock them in the head and kill them. That's the only way they'd get to heaven. The person who kills them might go to hell, but the only way a person would ever get to heaven is the moment they become saved, just in their life so that they don't have time to void it because uh, we all sin, come short. No, that's not true. Your spirit has been sealed, sanctified, perfected forever, and it doesn't fluctuate. Therefore, your salvation is not dependent upon your holiness. It's dependent upon whether you've put faith in Jesus and you've been born again. And so I believe that. And I'd agree with this part that says, you know, the Baptists who say, once saved, always saved, because your sin doesn't affect your relationship with God. God loves you based on your faith in Jesus, and I agree with that. But I would disagree with the conclusion that you can't, uh, that you just are once saved, always saved. The Scripture does teach in a number of places about becoming reprobate, about losing your salvation. One of the classic examples of this is Hebrews chapter 6. There's others, but I had not got time to deal with them all. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the heaven of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away, to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. See, this is in the book of Hebrews where it talked about eternal redemption. Jesus made one sacrifice. He entered in once. We've been sanctified, perfected forever. 
This is the same book, it's the same context that is emphasizing that the one offering of Jesus worked once for all, all times. And the point he's making is that if a person falls away, there's no more sacrifice. That one sac- If they void that sacrifice, there isn't another sacrifice. Y- you can't reapply it. You can't get born again again. Jesus isn't going to die a second time and go through that shame and humiliation. That one sacrifice was it forever. But this very verse does mention if they fall away. And there's other places that do the same thing. In Galatians, it talks about that you can make the uh, sacrifice of Christ of none effect by becoming a legalist and trusting in your own works. Hebrews 10 talks about this same thing. Second Peter chapter 1. There's other places. And so uh, I do believe that a person can fall away, but it's not because they sin away their salvation. The Scripture teaches us that we were saved by faith And you have to maintain that faith. You have to hold fast your profession of faith. I don't think you can send your salvation away, but you can reject it. You can renounce it. It's not uh, easily done, but it is possible. I don't believe that there's very many people who fall away. But I do believe that it's possible or the Bible wouldn't have warned us of it. But you don't send it away. Now, sin is involved in this sense that before a person would ever renounce so great a salvation, they would have to become hardened towards God. They'd have to lose their perception, their wisdom, their understanding. In a sense, Satan would have to somehow or another dull them to what they really have and blind them to truth, or nobody in their right mind would renounce the Lord. And so sin is a part of that process. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 3 that we can harden our hearts through the deceitfulness of sin. And so a person who goes out and lives in sin, it's not the sin itself that is going to cause them to lose salvation. Because again, if it was, what sin is it? And you have to start categorizing. No, sin doesn't cause you to lose your salvation. Your spirit can't sin. It's been sealed by the Holy Spirit, sanctified, perfected forever. So your spirit is not affected by that sin But sin does begin to affect your soulish realm. It'll make you dull and unperceptive towards God. And if you persist far enough, you could come to a place to where Satan will try and make you renounce your faith in the Lord. And if you renounce your faith and reject God, you can reject your salvation. You can throw it away. You can't lose it. It's not like you can misplace it. You have to openly reject it. And that's something that takes place over a period of time. So it's not a matter of once saved, always saved, or you lose your salvation every time you sin. Neither one of those is true. You are saved by the grace of God, and therefore your sins don't cause you to lose your salvation, but your sin can harden your heart, and eventually you could come to a place where you renounce your faith in the Lord, and that's what Hebrews chapter 6 is describing. And if that happens, it's impossible to ever be renewed again unto repentance. Now, this is a critical point because those who believe you lose your salvation every time you sin, they also believe that all you got to do is confess it and you get born again again. You get saved again. You, you pray through and you come back into right standing with God. Hebrews 6 is saying that can never happen. If a person believes that you do lose your salvation when you sin, then you can never come back into right standing with God. what Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 is saying. And so some people say, well, man, if this be true, we're all in big trouble. 
because, you know, many people in frustration have gotten upset and said, oh, I'm quitting this. It didn't work. And they go back and they sin, they do something. And so, therefore, are you saying that there's lots of people that have lost their salvation? No, this puts a disclaimer on this or some qualifications. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, it says it is impossible for those, and then it lists five things, those who were once enlightened. I believe that this is referring to John six forty four, where it says that no man can come unto the Father except the Spirit draw him. In other words, this is talking about the very first thing is you've got to be drawn by the Holy Spirit. You couldn't have been coerced into making some statement, signing a church role, repeating a prayer just because somebody drug you there. And then when you didn't really experience a dramatic change, you got tired and renounced it and said, I reject this. It isn't real. Well, see, you never were drawn by the Holy Ghost. It never was a real conviction. You were going to church because your parents made you go or because you were dating somebody and they made you go and repeat a prayer. Now, so see, you don't qualify. Therefore, you aren't even held accountable for that so-called rejection. The very first thing is that you have to be enlightened. That means drawn by the Holy Ghost. Have tasted of the heavenly gift, which I believe is talking about being born again. Has to be a genuine conversion. We're made partakers of the Holy Ghost. That's talking about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Have tasted the good word of God. That's a person who has begun to grow and mature where the word of God is literally impacting them. They've done more than put it in their mouth. They've swallowed it. The nutrient, the life of the word is beginning to impact them. It's describing growth in the Christian life. And the last thing, it says that they've tasted the power of the world to come. That's talking about operating in these gifts. A person who's spirit-filled and is actually going on to maturity and having the power of God. In other words, what this is describing, it is, it's saying that you have to be a mature Christian before you can actually renounce your salvation. And if a mature Christian renounces their salvation, then they can never be uh, brought again back into a place of repentance. It's a one-time deal. If a mature Christian renounces their faith, they're held accountable and they are damned, and that's it. Now, Paul talked about that, how he blasphemed the Holy Ghost, and he said, yet I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Jesus said blasphemy against the Holy Ghost was unpardonable. It's the only thing that could not be pardoned. And yet Paul said he received mercy because he did it ignorantly. So that shows that this sin of blasphemy in the Holy Ghost is something that it depends again on whether you were ignorant when you did it or if you did it knowingly. That's basically what Hebrews chapter 6 is describing. This cannot be, you can't lose your salvation. You just can't in a moment of frustration say, I renounce the Lord and I want away from this. No, it has to be a mature person who's been drawn by the Holy Spirit, born again, baptized in the Holy Ghost, mature in the Word, operating in the gifts of the Holy Ghost, and then you have to renounce it. Only then are you held accountable. You know, I can relate this to like a child running away from home. When I was a little kid, I don't even remember, somewhere around five to eight years old, something, I got upset, and I was going to run away from home, and I took off. And, you know, I wasn't even out of sight of my house until I realized I'd made a mistake. I got to thinking about where am I going? Where am I going to sleep? What am I going to eat? I love my parents. I might have been upset, but, man, I don't want to run away. But I was too proud to admit it. And I actually got caught up in a barbed wire fence on purpose, got caught so that my brother could catch me. He was running after me. And they brought me home. So, you know what? I got mad. And I said, I don't want to be a woman. And I ran away. 
But it wasn't imputed unto me. It wasn't held against me. If the police would have been called, they would have been on the side of my parents because I was only five, six, seven, eight. I didn't know what I was doing. The government would back my parents. I'm not old enough. I'm not uh, legally able to do those kind of things. But you know what? Now I'm 50 years old. And if I wanted to renounce my mother and change my name and make a legal separation and like I never, you know, like there was never this relationship, the government would back me up. I'm old enough now that I can decide. I think that that same thing happens in this matter of rejecting our salvation. God knows whether a person is mature or not. I don't know how to qualify that. I can look at Hebrews 6, but... Uh, It just gives me a little outline. I don't know the exact specifics, but God knows a person's heart. Somebody might think, well, I was a mature Christian, and I did that. So are you saying I'm reprobate? Well, let me share some scriptures with you. In Romans chapter 1, it describes what being reprobate is. The word reprobate was used about Judas Iscariot, for instance. Here's some things about being reprobate. It says in Romans... Chapter 1, it's describing these terrible things that people got into, their sins and stuff. And it says they didn't like to retain God in their knowledge. In verse 28, it says, even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. And then down in verse 32, it says, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. In other words, a person who has rejected their salvation, who has become what the Bible calls reprobate, beyond hope, they can never come back into relationship with God. When that happens, God gives them over to this reprobate mind. It means he takes away this conviction of the Holy Spirit. I quoted that scripture a minute ago in John chapter 6, verse 44. It says, no man can come unto the Father except the Holy Spirit draw him. You aren't convicted about your need in relationship for the Lord unless the Holy Spirit is dealing with you. When a person becomes reprobate, and if God counts them as mature and holds them accountable, and if they fulfill what Hebrews 6 says and lose their salvation or renounce it more accurately, then God takes the Holy Spirit away and they are now reprobate. They are no longer convicted. They not only know that they're doing wrong, they not only like it, they like all those who are rebelling at God too. It shows total lack of conviction, total lack of response to God, no desire towards God. So here's a point that I'm making. If a person listening says, well, I think, man, I was mature and I renounced the Lord. Are you saying I'm reprobate? Well, are you repenting? Are you sorry for what you've done? Do you desire to be in relationship with God? If you do, well, then you aren't reprobate. Because the Holy Spirit's still dealing with you. A reprobate person is no longer convicted and drawn by the Holy Spirit. So if anybody thinks, oh, I committed this and I'm reprobate, and yet you're sorry about it, and you desire to get back in relationship with God, then no, you weren't mature enough. God didn't impute it unto you. You're like the Apostle Paul, who was forgiven because you were ignorant when you did those things. So anyway, that's an attempt to explain some of, I know, the religious concepts and questions that come up. But the main point I was trying to get across is that when you get born again, Ephesians 4.24 says your spirit was created in righteousness and true holiness. And that's not temporary because you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1.13. That means preserved so that your sin that you commit in your physical actions doesn't penetrate and contaminate your spirit. 
Your spirit cannot sin, 1 John 3, 9. And according to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 and 14, you were sanctified and perfected forever. Hebrews 12, 23 makes it very clear that's talking about your spirit. So that spirit has received eternal redemption. And what this does, it gives you a stability in your life. It doesn't encourage a person to go sin. I, I am not taking this message and using it as an occasion to go live in sin. I still live holy because, number one, I want to. Number two, I recognize if I don't live holy, I'm going to give Satan people an opportunity against me. And I found out that living holy is, is better. It's more beneficial than living in sin. But I don't live holy so that God will be pleased with me. I recognize that God is pleased with me because of who I am in the Spirit. Because of what Jesus has done to give me a brand new spirit that was created in righteousness and true holiness. And because of that, I don't want to go live in sin, but I still do fall short. I still get upset. I still do things that I shouldn't. And when I do, sin doesn't have dominion over me the way it used to. Because I know that God has already forgiven me of it. I know that in my spirit it wasn't stained and that God is a spirit. And then when I fellowship with God, I have to fellowship with him through who I am in the spirit. So I have a constant relationship with the Lord. I know that God is always loving me. He's always pleased with me. He may not be pleased with everything I do, but he's pleased with me, the born again me. That's the real me. And that's the part of me that God loves. And that's the part of me that I've come to love. I'm not enamored and overwhelmed with my carnal self and my actions. You know, as I'm getting older, my body's changing. Things are happening. I don't like some of the things that I see. I don't like some of the things I do. I don't like some of my thoughts. But I've come to realize there's a new me. And I am thrilled with what Jesus has done. And I have confidence in that. I am walking in the Spirit and not in the flesh. And because of it, I have joy and peace and all of these things. And see, this has given me a stability in my life. Instead of feeling like I lose everything every time I sin or fall short and then I have to get born again again and start over and start the whole growth process and I just can't get ahead because every, every time I take one step forward, I take two backwards. Man, that concept's totally gone. I recognize that in my spirit, I was created righteous and truly holy and I'm in the process of renewing my mind to that. And I know that when I fail along the way that, man, I'm still who I was in Christ. I didn't lose anything. I'm still infinitely more than I've ever been able to appropriate and manifest. And because of that, when I fail, I just turn from it. I repent. I get back on track and start doing what God told me to do. Let me use one last scripture before I end this teaching. In 1 John 1, verse 9, I know some of you probably thought of this. The way that this verse has been taught is that every time we sin, we have to confess our sins to receive forgiveness. And that would go along with some of those things I taught against just a few moments ago. This verse says, 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So again, if this verse, the way it's traditionally taught, means... If if this is what it means, that you have to confess every sin that you commit... To get it forgiven. If that's what it means, this would put such a burden upon us that we have to deal with every sin. And again, religion has said adultery is sin, lying, murder, stealing is sin, and they categorize it. But the Bible is much more 
uh, broad than that. It's the things that we should be doing. If you aren't walking in love, that's sin. Do you confess every time? Are you aware of every time that you've walked by somebody and you were so selfish, you were thinking about yourself, and there was somebody over here who needed your help, and you just drove past them, walked past them, you forgot them? That's sin. The Lord told us not to do that. You know what? There's things that you're doing that you don't even realize that you're doing, and there's plenty that you're doing that you do realize you're doing. If this means that you have to confess every sin before it's forgiven, then that would be such a burden upon you that I don't think anybody could ever fulfill that. I think we all do things that we aren't even aware of. And sometimes we do things that we are aware of, such as overeating. We know it's wrong. We just keep doing it. Well, that's sin. And so if this was true, nobody could ever retain their salvation. By process of elimination, that just cannot be what it means. There's two ways that I think you can look at this and be consistent with everything I said. Number one, I believe that this is probably talking about when we first come to the Lord. We confess our sin, not our sins, plural, but our sin, the sin nature, the fact that we have come short of the glory of God. You don't have to confess every individual sin. If it was dependent upon us confessing everything we've ever done wrong, nobody could get saved because I can just guarantee you we would have forgotten some of them. So this is talking about just acknowledging your sin nature, your separation from God, acknowledging it so that you bow the knee and receive salvation. And I believe primarily this is the main interpretation. This isn't talking to the born-again Christian that every time you sin, you have to confess that sin to get forgiven. But it's talking about how you come to the Lord. You have to acknowledge that you are a sinner, and you have to confess that and receive your salvation. So I believe that that's probably the predominant interpretation. You could also look at it this way, and this would still be consistent with everything I taught today on this tape. And that is that after you're born again, your spirit is saved, perfected, so it's not affected by your sin, but your physical body, Romans six sixteen. know ye not that to whom ye yield yourself, servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So you could look at it this way and say that when you sin, that sin is external in your body or in your soul, and Satan takes advantage of that. It gives him a legal right because you yielded yourself to him. So how do you repent of that? How do you get him out? Well, you could say, I confess that. I acknowledge. The word confess here means to agree, to say the same thing. You just say that, God, I was wrong. You were right. I did the wrong thing. This gave Satan this opportunity. So by confessing it, you take this salvation, the forgiveness, the righteousness and holiness that is already a reality in your spirit and that never fluctuated by your failure. And by confessing, you draw out of your spirit that holiness and righteousness, and it is released into your body. It literally drives the devil out. It takes his place. He no longer has rights and privileges once we repent and turn from what we've done. Now, see, either one of those two interpretations would be consistent with what I said, Uh, but this cannot mean that you have to confess every sin that you do, and until you confess, it's not put under the blood. If that was so nobody could be saved or retain their salvation. It just doesn't mean that. It's very obvious to me that it means these other things. So the main point I wanted to get across is that you've received eternal redemption. And if you understand this, this won't embolden you to go sin. 
But man, it will free you up to say, what a great God we have. And you'll want to spend even more time with him. And you'll want to live even holier so that nothing will ever dull you or keep you from perceiving these great truths. Man, it'll cause you to live holy. And I believe that that's the way that it should be. We shouldn't be trying to live holy out of fear of rejection and punishment, but we ought to live holy as a result of our salvation. As as it says over in the book of Romans chapter 6, we have our fruit unto holiness. Holiness is a fruit, not a root of salvation. Holiness isn't what produces God moving in our life, but our external actions of holiness are a result of understanding that our spirit's already been created righteous and truly holy. I tell you, if you can get hold of the things we've talked about on this tape and the first tape, this is life-changing. It will totally change your relationship with God. It'll let you, it'll give you a security, and it, the main thing that it did for me I knew that God loved me. I had this miraculous experience, but because of my actions, I thought, well, he loved me at one time, but I'm not sure he still loves me now because I just don't feel worthy. I came to realize, though, that I was born again and that my spirit was righteous and holy, and God loved that born-again part of me. And that's how he looked at me. And because of that, God still loves me today as much as I've ever perceived. The truth is, he loves me infinitely more than I have ever yet perceived. If I was to take all of my revelation about God's love for me and add it together, it still doesn't match up to the true revelation of how much God loves me. But regardless of how badly I sin and fall short, God still loves me because of who I am in the Spirit. That's the part of me he sees. I'm his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. I'm his workmanship, and I'm perfect and pure in my spirit, and God loves me, and so I'm never separated from the love of God. See, this gives new meaning to the scriptures in Romans chapter 8 that says, What shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or peril or nakedness or sword or life, or death, angels, principalities, power, nothing shall be able to separate me from the love of God. Because in my spirit, God has already given me his full measure of love. John 1.16, of his fullness have all we received in grace upon grace. Man, I am full of God. One third of me is wall-to-wall Holy Ghost. And all of those things are also true of you. If you believe that, that knowledge will impact your life And it'll make you feel so clean, so pure. It'll make you feel so appreciative of what God has done that you will live holier accidentally in your actions than you ever have before. Praise God. What a great revelation. I just pray in the name of Jesus that the Holy Spirit quickens these truths to you and releases the life and the power in them that have impacted me and so many other people. Father, make this so. Let this become a reality. We pray for your wisdom and revelation, and we receive that. Thank you for doing it in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope your heart has been quickened by hearing the Word of God through this message. It's the faithful support of people like you who make this ministry possible. We invite you to prayerfully consider becoming a partner with Andrew Womack Ministries. We maintain a website at awmi.net. Our helpline number is 719-635-1111 
or you can write us at P.O. Box 3333, Colorado Springs, Colorado, 80934. Until next time, we pray that you'll reach out by faith and receive everything that's yours through God's grace.